We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing calls for military conscription reform on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the United Daily News' latest local government leadership satisfaction survey for the six special municipalities, and government plans to push ahead with transforming the Taiwan Railways Administration into a state-run corporation. But we'll begin with folks here in Taiwan being jolted out of their slumber early Wednesday morning when a magnitude 6.6 earthquake struck off the coast of Hualien. Of course, one quake wasn't enough, and for the remainder of the day and into Thursday and today in the east. Parts of the island have been rattled by a series of aftershocks and more earthquakes, ranging in intensity from 6.1 to 1 on the Central Weather Bureau's intensity scale. The 6.6 magnitude earthquake left one person injured, damaged several roads along the east coast, caused a localised power outage in the south, while a bridge under construction on Provincial Highway Number 9 in Yuli Township in Hualien, well, partially collapsed during the quake. Rock slides were also reported in the Taidong area, but not cause any injuries. Now, the Weather Bureau said the early Wednesday earthquake was the strongest in Taiwan so far this year, but there have been more than three earthquakes of the magnitude of more than six so far this year, higher than the annual average of 2.5 for Taiwan. Now, several of the island's leading tech companies reported automatic shutdowns and minor glitches due to shaking, but they were saying that the earthquake didn't really disrupt their production. Now, experts have been saying this week that the 6.6 magnitude earthquake released the energy equivalent of four atomic bombs and they're also warning that Taiwan may have entered a period of seismic activity as other recent quakes have occurred in the Shinzu, Nanto and Taidong areas so far this year. So Nicola, were you awakened from your slumber from the quake? I was, yeah. You never quite get used to that um, screeching in your ear, do you, when the emergency alert comes through? And I, I mean, I'm grateful for the alerts, but yeah, it's always, it always kind of jolt you with a you know kind of sudden fear of your disorientation when you're sleeping you know what what is this so I, I it was actually quite timely this this time as well I, I um I had time to put on the light and then just look at my phone wondering what was happening before the shakes started so I, I think it's it's even though it's a it's a horrible sound I think it's a good thing it does give you a little bit of a moment to react and of course, Nicola Donovan is talking, talking about the, the presidential alert that bounces off our cell phones here. Uh, yeah, I didn't get one this time, which I was a little surprised at because apparently other people in Taichung did. Apparently it does that, though. Apparently not everyone gets one all the time for some reason or other. Well, yeah, I'm not really sure why. I, I have received them in the past. I don't, don't know why I didn't get one this time. But were you wakened from your slumber? I, I was just... I was having trouble sleeping already, and uh, I was finally just getting at that beautiful point where I was drifting away, and then I was jolted back awake again. So uh, it, uh, it it did interrupt my sleep, you could say. Uh, but it didn't interrupt the tech companies, though, did it? No, it didn't. Um, and that's pretty impressive, really, when you think about it. In fact, um, looking at this entire earthquake, one of the things that really jumped out at me was uh, as over time, progressively, it does seem like these large earthquakes are causing a lot less damage. I mean, I suppose that the easy-to-go-down ones have already done so, uh, and but new construction, I think this really speaks to improvements being made, particularly since 921. 
um, that the the infrastructure here has really been hardened, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if hardened is the right word when talking about earthquakes, but has been built more appropriately to uh, to deal with uh, with earthquakes, and I think it's the the results are really starting to show. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that um, I'm I'm not a veteran of of earthquakes, um, but having grown up in the UK, but. Um, I've covered uh, earthquakes for my job a couple of times um, in Nepal and Indonesia, and it's been much more unsettling there when when you see the level of destruction and just in in the buildings, in in regular buildings, and you know what it could be like. And and I've I've always felt a bit more. You can't be complacent in Taiwan. I mean, a, a really big one could do some very substantial damage. But I I think you know with with the level of earthquake that we had this week, then I always. I, I kind of feel pretty trusting in the um, in the construction standards here, um, and and it, I, I find it much less alarming. And Donovan, what about the the period of heavy seismic activity that the experts are touting? Uh, you know, I, I, I mean that's fairly common after a fairly after a significantly large one. If you remember from nine twenty one, it went on for weeks, uh, particularly for about a week there, where we were getting regular. Five. We had, I think, one or two over six, and then there was a whole bunch over five uh, after the 921 earthquake. Uh, so that seems to be pretty standard. I, I you know, I, I've just come to expect that. And of course, the international media, Nicola, which you work for, didn't really cover this earthquake. No, I mean, I, there's so much going on in the world at the minute. I, I think, you know, for the international media, there's so much focus on on the the kind of disastrous war unfolding in Ukraine and and many other things happening. And and you know, it, it was a it was a big joke for people here, but ultimately, you know, thankfully there weren't casualties, there wasn't much damage. So I saw a couple of stories on the news wires, but that was pretty much it. And moving away from the earthquake now, and Defence Minister Cho Guo-jung on Wednesday told lawmakers that his office will issue an evaluation later this year on whether or not to extend the existing four-month mandatory military training for conscripts. It could be extended, reportedly, for one year. However, Cho is stressing that if the evaluation recommends extending the service period, the proposal will still have to be approved by the central government and put on public notice for one year before taking effect. Speaking to lawmakers, Cho said that he personally believes that the existing four-month training period is inadequate to properly train personnel to be qualified soldiers to defend the island in the event of war. The statement comes amid calls by lawmakers here to extend the conscription period due to the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, and students are also being voicing their concerns about the need to extend conscription. All Taiwanese men over the age of 18 initially had to serve two or three years in the military as part of a conscription system, but that was gradually reduced to one year by 2008. Former President Ma Ying-jeou and announced that he would turn the nation's armed forces into a fully volunteer force in which conscripts will only need to undergo four months of military training starting from 2013. And the military, of course, is currently a mainly volunteer force with conscripts serving in a supporting role. So, Donovan, lots of talk about this in recent weeks, but then the Defence Minister this week, he talked about it as well. Yeah, I, I, I think the consensus is it has been moving in this direction for a while, if you look at polling, but it uh, definitely seems to, since the invasion of Ukraine, has really risen, I think, in people's minds. And people have been talking about uh, this this topic and, and other defense-related topics far more seriously, I think, uh, in the last few weeks than they have previously. 
And what's interesting I found is that now there is a a majority, if memory serves, it was 58% or was it 56% now support uh, women being conscripted and a vast majority uh, want the conscription to be extended up to at least one year again. Um, So there does seem to be now a pretty broad consensus that this needs to happen, not that it should happen. Um, now, what's a little bit surprising to me is uh, Chiu Guozheng's response in that they need to study it first. Now, this puzzles me a little bit because uh, one would have thought that the government would have already studied this as a possibility prior to this, and they already have experience of having done it previously. So it seemed a little bit odd to me that they needed to look into it. Now, admittedly before, it was a purely uh, male affair, and if they want to expand it to include women, that may include other provisions um, for to to include that. But I'm a little surprised they weren't ready with a plan in place already. Yeah, I I think that um, uh, Ukraine could be... uh, bit of a game changer for Taiwan in terms of focusing minds on, on what needs to be done and, and adding a sense of urgency. And also um, just, you know, kind of looking at what lessons can be learned from Ukraine, uh, which is also vastly outmatched by its authoritarian neighbour in terms of, of, you know, in military terms, but is really fighting back effectively. Um, and I think Taiwan still has that time where it can focus on things like um, uh, conscription, uh, building up its reservist forces um, as a deterrent to really kind of give China pause for thought in the first place. Um, you know, we're not we're not quite at that stage where. Um, yet like Ukraine where people are being forced to to pick up arms and fight um there's still a little bit of time but there's not that much time i mean the defense minister has said himself that china could be um capable of a, a full scale invasion by 2025 those um estimates have also been echoed by the indo-pacific command us indo-pacific command who you know have kind of said about the same time scale 2026 and that doesn't mean it's going to happen but Taiwan just doesn't have the luxury of time just now. It doesn't, you know, as Donovan says, it should have a plan. You know, I think it should uh, be thinking more creatively as well. It doesn't have to just focus on conscription reform and, you know, this one issue alone. Um, you've got uh, military thinkers like Admiral Li Ximin, um, who was the, the, the former um, chief of, of general staff um, recently. He's advocating for some kind of Taiwanese territorial defence force, which be much more structured, much more trained and much more effective uh, in the event of an invasion to really inflict damage on invading forces and make it very hard for them to control Taiwan's territory. Yes, uh, I actually wrote two columns uh, sort of running with the idea that Li Ximing and uh, Michael Hunziker ran in that War on the Rocks piece about the Territorial Defense Force. And the first one I talked about pretty more or less what they were talking about and the idea there is that structurally the reserves are not necessarily very good for preparing Taiwan for a long-term insurgency because their primary role is to back up the armed forces on the, on the front lines. So the idea was is that a separate, different from the, the reserves, a territorial defense force would be need, needed to be created 
where people would be trained in, the, as they described it, patriotic young men and women who would be trained in uh, the kinds of arms that would be needed in an insurgency, including a lot of the ones that are being used very effectively in Ukraine. And the idea being, as they put it, is that once, uh, if the uh, it, you know if the People's Liberation Army gets past the beachhead and takes over an urban territory. The idea is that the uh, territorial defense force would then spring into action, you know, once the the lines have advanced into their neighborhoods, and then they start taking on the invading forces as a uh, as an insurgent force. Now, my second uh, article actually turned out to be my my <laughs> most popular column for this outlet. Um, it, uh, I titled it "The Taiwan Territorial Defense Force Needs You," and what. I went into in that is that I think that they needed to go a little bit further on this plan in that the Territorial Defense Force should start thinking about integrating uh, a lot more civilian elements, particularly with an eye on things like logistics, medical care, because the insurgents are going to need food, they're going to need medical care, they're going to need water and fuel and ways to re, you know, replenish their ammunition, repairs of vehicles, all these kinds of things. So that people need, will need to be trained in a lot of these other areas, in not necessarily young men and women picking up guns. So I use some examples. Uh, you know, for example, Taiwan is extremely good at logistics, and Taiwan has tons of these little factory owners, warehouse owners, and these people are really good at fundamental logistics. They have the warehouses, they have the vehicles for delivery, they have the, the expertise. So these kinds of people, you know, volunteers who can then organize their peers if something actually happens. In terms of medical care, because uh, medical personnel, particularly nurses, but also to a lesser degree doctors, are so overworked, they probably actually have to employ some um, who would be able to, again, organize their peers should something happen. Uh, some other suggestions that I threw out there uh, for this is that the government should expand their pamphleting. Right now, they're, they're talking about one pamphlet for what everyone should do. Uh, but I pointed out that there's other groups of people who should be brought into this. For example, the Li Zhangs, the Chen Zhangs, they need to be able to coordinate with the, with the defense, the territorial defense force. But also, for example, uh, building uh, management committees that, because a lot of people in Taiwan live in these very large apartment blocks, pamphlets for the management committees who can then prepare for certain things for their own building. For example, they can prepare a certain amount of food or water. A lot of the uh, parking garages of these buildings are, in theory, bomb shelters, but where does everyone go to the bathroom? In other words, to get these building management committees to start thinking about these kinds of challenges should the worst happen in advance, and also perhaps even finding people within the building who can take on organizational roles. Uh, Anyway, in the piece, I, I go into considerable more detail there, but you sort of get the idea of where, where I was going with that. So, it, uh, there's, so this would create a three-tiered structure where you have, the, uh, you have the active military bolstered by the reserves, and then if the PLA breaks through those lines, 
then you've got a territorial defense force ready to undermine and start picking off everything they can and making life a living hell for the invading forces as kind of the third line of defense. Yeah, th- those are all great ideas. Um, we're already seeing um, grassroots organisation taking on that one of those roles you mentioned, uh, Donovan, about um, the kind of more practical logistics style, like first aid. You've got someone like Inokwu who yeah. started his Forward Alliance organisation and, and he's doing trainings now, I think, every weekend of like first aid, mass, mass casualty. How do you deal with, you know, how do you stem bleeding? How do you um, organise your community to cope? not only in a time of war, but also in a time of natural disaster, which is also very relevant to to um, Taiwan. I think really what what needs to happen, though, is that it, it, the government needs to take this forward and really run with it and give it a little, a little bit more structure because it's all very well to have these great grassroots organisations. But um, as you said, there needs to be more... Um, a, a bigger structural component to it. And I, I think, you know, Admiral Lee had said that this t- territorial defence force could be brought under the, the Ministry of Defence. So that's going to mean, that's going to need, I think the willingness is there from the public, but it does need um, someone on the top as well to kind of, to push it forward and to really make it happen in a structured way. And something, another point that you mentioned about pamphlets, um, I think that would be good for old people, but I do think that government really needs to get on board and, and see what Zelensky, President Zelensky in Ukraine has done with social media and how strong his messaging messaging has been. Um, and he has done such a great job of, of kind of visibly leading. Um, and a lot of that has been done through his, um, his social media appearances, um, the way his government has really got out a very strong narrative. And they're winning the social media war. Um, and that is something that, that I think Taiwan could really learn from. Um, it, it has um, experts, uh, internet experts like you know Audrey Tang um, and so many people who are who are great. Um, you know, using social media to put out um, very uh, meaningful and effective messages, and and that's a big part of just psychologically boosting the population and marketing it internationally. Because the I mean to extend on what you're saying, which is all absolutely correct. Um, the uh, it's something that. I think the world has responded to a lot of those images of common people coming together to resist the invasion force. Uh, you know, the images of, you know, the little old ladies putting together Molotov cocktails and then raising their fists and swearing at the invading army. Uh, they really kind of, I think they really punched hard and really, I think that those images, possibly more than any others, uh, it really mobilized the international community. So yeah, extending on what you're saying, I, I think that's an absolutely critical part of all of this. Donovan, there's also been over the years, people have penned articles and people have taken to social media here in Taiwan saying that they don't believe the Taiwanese people have any will to fight would China invade. Oh, that's utter nonsense. Um, you know, I, <laughs> Michael Turton sort of reminded everybody of this recently in a in a piece uh, in the Taipei Times, is that Taiwan has a long history of rebellions and revolts. Um, I, the, the you know people thought that the young people in Hong Kong were uh, shallow, materialistic, apolitical, 
and they took on the Chinese state with incredible bravery. So, you know, the Taiwanese, I think, would be at least as tough as the Hong Kongers, possibly considerably more, considering that here there could be a state-backed and long-term preparation campaign that people would actually be trained, organized, and ready to actually take on the People's Liberation Army, whereas in Hong Kong, this was spontaneous. It just arose spontaneously among people with zero training, zero preparation, and no backing, really, from any institutions. So I think that Taiwanese uh, would do an excellent job at resisting an invading army. I, I think that Taiwanese are very... And you see this in the millions and one, for example, um, the the people who took over the uh, the legislature during the Sunflower Movement, or you see it in the creativity of small and medium enterprises to figure out ways to come up with a product that is higher quality and cheaper, and you know, with through improved logistics and and techniques to. To, to improve things. You see it just in a million little ways that Taiwanese are very, very flexible, creative, and respond to challenges very well when they, when, when they need to. I absolutely agree, actually, that I, I don't see why the Taiwanese would be any different to um, other populations whose democracy and freedom has been threatened, like Donovan said, in Hong Kong, um, Myanmar, Ukraine. They've all you know, there's been popular um, uprising, pushback against authoritarian uh, an authoritarian um, attempt to take take them over, and I I just don't see why Taiwan would be any different at all. I think there's a lot of um, uh, I think people really do want to know how they can fight back more effectively. Um, I think the will is there, but but perhaps the knowledge of you know how they can best fit into that picture is not there, and that's something that Taiwan and the, the military, the government, uh, civil organisations can be working on now. How to to prepare people. And we have to take a short break now here on Taiwan this week, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the United Daily News released its latest local government leadership satisfaction survey for the six special municipalities this week. The poll looked at residents' happiness as well as the six cities' economies, transportation, public security, pandemic prevention and long-term care. Now, New Taipei's Ho Yoi came out on top in the leadership poll with a satisfaction rating standing at 90.9% and was the only local head to surpass the 90% mark. Ho was followed by Taoyuan Mayor Zhang Wen-san with a satisfaction rating of 83.2% and Tainan Mayor Huang Weijie with an 83.2% satisfaction rating. Now, Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Chi Mai scored a 78.3%, Taichung Mayor Lu Shou-yen at a 74.6% satisfaction rating and poor Taipei Mayor Ke Wen-je rounded out the ratings with 61.4% satisfaction ratings. Now, in terms of cities' residents' happinesses, well, those in Taichung feel the happiest with a 90.6% rating, followed by Tainan 
Hainan with 89.4%, Taoyuan at 88.7%, and New Taipei City at 87.8%. Kaohsiung City scored 84.3%, and Taipei's happiness ratings, well, again, it came out bottom at 78.4%. Now, in terms of self-distinction, or basically being happy that you come from this particular city, Tainan residents topped the poll there at 88.4%, followed by Taichung at 86.8%, Taoyuan at 83.3%, New Taipei City residents' self-distinction level came in at 81.9%, Kaohsiung's at 81.8%, and Taipei's, again, was lowest at 71.2%. So, Donovan, there you go. Apparently, you live in the happiest city in Taiwan. Of course. I mean, you know, it's Taichung. <laughs> you know, it just goes without saying. Um, now, looking at some of these numbers, I, I found that, that some of the, you know, for example, I'll use, uh, I, if you look at some of these numbers that, for example, here, I'm looking at where they rank, rank it down specifically by, for example, uh, improving the local economy, uh, local, you know, uh, safety, um, security, you know, crime, that sort of thing, improving um, uh, traffic. And I'm looking at some of those numbers, and they're a little bit weird. What's interesting, I find, is that, on almost all of them, Taipei's at the bottom. Now that's that that's quite interesting there. Now Taichung's I've noticed kind of bounce all over the place. And for example, improving traffic, it actually comes in number two, just behind uh, New Taipei. But I think in that case, it's coming from a low base, for example. Uh, but when it comes to uh, public safety. Taichung comes in at the bottom of the list, which I think has a lot to do with the recent high-profile cases. But in practice, Taichung used to be at the bottom, but it's not anymore. So some of these, I think, are more perceptions than they are reality. But overall, what's I think also quite interesting is that Kuenja pretty much gets slammed straight across the board uh, on almost everything. And he has, you know, the least number of people who are very satisfied and by far the most number of people who are very unsatisfied. But he's actually quite popular nationally, but he seems to be pretty disliked or his administration. Technically, this is about the administration, not the individual, but they tend to be highly correlated, I've noticed, um, between uh, rankings of administration and the individual mayor then you see, of course, new Taipei Mayor uh, Hoyoi did extremely well in most categories and uh, had the highest very satisfied and the, the least uh, strong, uh, so strongly unsatisfied. Uh, but another one I found that was kind of interesting is that number four on the list, Kaohsiung, Chen Chimai actually almost came in with the just barely came in behind uh, Hoyoi in uh, New Taipei for very satisfied, but he also has a lot less just simply satisfied and has a higher dissatisfied ranking, which I think is kind of interesting. There seems to be a higher strong like, strong dislike when it comes to Chen Chimai and Kaohsiung. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know how much I can really say on, on this subject because I've only ever lived in Taipei, so I don't know why other people are happier elsewhere. I suspect, though, it's probably sunshine because, there's, because <laughs> well, it just that's, rains. That's why we're the happiest people here in Taipei. Yeah. We get the most sunshine. Exactly, because it just rains so much in Taipei that I think actually so many people have just got some kind of seasonal rain disorder um, that it really impacts your mood. And I'm certainly always happier when I take the, the HSR down south and, and suddenly, you know, you pass 
Sebastian Chu and, and the sun comes out. I mean, these polls are so... Uh, happiness is such a subjective issue, isn't it? And, and, and I'm never quite sure how you know, accurate you, you, these polls can really be. Um, I, I also think it's, it's just a kind of general uh, rule that, that people in capital cities anywhere are, are a bit more stressed out. Um, you, you know, there's a lot more traffic. Um, it's, there's a lot more people. It's a lot more hectic. Um, I guess, you know, you have to fight harder for, for kind of basic services because there's, you know, you're, you're competing with the next person. Um, uh, so I, I don't think that's particularly unusual, and it doesn't sound like people are desperately unhappy in Taipei either. I mean, it's 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 a it's a pretty great place place to live. And of course, Donovan, you residents of Taichung came top of the their, their respect for their local government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, if you look at the major outbreaks, of course, we're in Taoyuan and New Taipei and Taipei, and then there were some outbreaks down in Kaohsiung, but, uh, and even Zhanghua, just to the south of us, but Taichung was, it has been largely spared. Uh, what's interesting is if you go all the way back to SARS, the big outbreaks were Taipei and Kaohsiung, but Taichung was again largely spared. So in terms of uh, being hit by the pandemic, Taichung has really weathered it quite well. How much of that is attributable to the local government is debatable. And I'm not saying that the, the local government did, did a bad job. It definitely did a good job. Um, but by and large, the government here uh, in Taichung followed the standards that were set out by the CECC, uh, implemented them well, uh, to the credit of Lu Xiuyan and, and the city here, uh, and added a few of their own. Um, but I do think that, generally speaking, uh, yes, the, the pandemic response here was, was quite good, uh, but I don't think that it was necessarily all that different than that was being taken in other cities. So there's, I think there's a certain amount of luck involved in there as well. I don't think it's really a fair comparison, though, is it? I mean, mm. when, when you look at Taoyuan, it's, that's where the international airport is. Yeah. And that's where, you know, yeah. that's, that's the biggest um, risk to the country. That's where the cases have been coming in. So, yeah, I mean, I understand why people there might be unhappy, but, but there's nothing you can do about that. And of course, Donovan, Taichung didn't actually come in bottom of the environmental quality poll. There I have a sneaking suspicion that what's going on is that the Taichung city government has, uh, has been, uh, both under Liu Xiuyan and under her predecessors, has been really battling the central government over this. So I think that the, the local perception is that it's re- that's really more the fault of the central government than the local government, which, like I say, going all the way back to Jason Hu through Lin Jialong and possibly the, even the strongest under Lu Xiuyan, who's really been trying to take the fight to Thai power uh, at, the, at the Taichung power plant, but quite frequently gets overruled by the central government. So there's been a lot of press about that and the efforts that the city government has been really taking to try and improve matters, and it, it, and they have improved uh, under all three of the last few, a few administrations. Uh, you know, by its, you know, uh, it, it, now the the pollution by most metrics is less than half what it was a decade ago. But really, the biggest barriers are if you try to take on Thai power, the uh, the central government generally can overrule the local governments and 
so you're kind of stuck. So the the local government has been getting has managed to impose some fines on Thai power and exerted some pressure on the central government. But primarily, the, the local government is stuck with things like trying to phase out two-stroke scooters, put in more solar panels, and get people to buy electric scooters. And the city government has been quite active on all these fronts, uh, putting, you know, elect- we lead the country, for example, in electric buses. So I, th- I think that's actually a fair assessment of the, the local government's attempts and effort and work put in on the issue, because I think that's kind of what the question is getting at, is what is your satisfaction level with the local administration on tackling the problem? And I do think that the, the Taichung city government deserves high rankings on that. So I'm not surprised there. And moving on now, the government this week avowed to push ahead with its plans to transform the Taiwan Railways Administration into a state-run corporation, as lawmakers are debating a draft statute governing the establishment of the Taiwan Railways Corporation. Now, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai had a rather busy week. On Monday, he had to fight back against claims that the move will see fair prices raise, and he was also busy trying to ensure Railways Administration employees that they won't see salary cuts or lose their benefits when the administration is transformed into a state-run corporation. Now, currently, all Railways Administration employees are civil servants as they have to sit the government's Railway Service Entrance Examination and the pending changes have led to concerns that they could see their wages cut and lose some of their benefits. So much so, in fact, that the Taiwan Railway Labour Union, well, it's vowing to take strike action on May the 1st in opposition to this move, arguing that the government is pushing ahead with its review of the statute to create the new corporation without asking union members first. So, Nicola, of course, we both come from a country which has major problems with its railway when it was run by one state company. Yeah, I don't think we can really compare that time, though, with, with what's happening in Taiwan just now. I mean, I... I um from just reading about this issue, it's not clear to me why the unions are unhappy. It's not clear exactly why they think their their salaries and benefits will be cut. The, the government and the, the transport minister has said they won't be. So is it just a question of the government not being able to communi- communicate that message well enough? I've also, it's my understanding that um, they would be able to have a, a twin track system where they could still keep their civil servant status if they want to um, or become corporate employees if they want to as well. I think there was a timescale of five years or, or that was the last thing I, I read about that. But at the heart of this is, is a very serious safety issue. Um, you know, this debate is coming up. Um, we're almost a year to the day of Taiwan's worst rail crash in in seven decades, when you know 49 people died um, on the the Hualien route. And coming from that, there has been a lot of public demands for reform. Um, the TRA has been accused of systemic failures uh, in how it it runs its operation. In cotton, it's been accused of. Um, uh, safety, cutting back on safety, cutting corners there. Um, even in in the terrible crash last year, it emerged that that the um, the the company whose truck dropped onto um, onto the railway that that they shouldn't have had that contract, um, and that there hadn't been enough vetting of of companies who and contractors who are working for the railway, um, the working on railways, um, and so. It's clear that there has to be 
some kind of reform for public safety um, from a public safety perspective to allow the government to bring in more professional railway experts and also just do what it has to do to make the agency more efficient and to stop this kind of cost cutting because it's in so much debt then that you're going to have to make cut somewhere and it shouldn't be in, in safety measures. If you look at the um, the New York Times uh, last year did an investigation a couple of months after the, the, the tragic crash and they found that since 2012 the, the agency's trains um, have had 316 major incidents that have killed 417 people. But when you look at the, the high-speed rail on the other side of the island, which is a public-private high-speed, um, it's public-private high-speed rail, there have been no incidents in the same time period. So you really have to look at how the railways are being run and how they can be better run uh, to keep the public safe. Of course, Donovan, the bringing in of railway experts is one of the union's big beefs, of course, because they're considered to be civil servants because they work for the Railways Administration. And, of course, that's been a problem in the past in bringing in foreign railway experts to run the company because they're basically not civil servants. They don't have to sit the examination. Yeah, I, I mean, there's that issue. Um, you know, and, and I think they, may, they find that a little bit galling. But, I mean, obviously the unions is looking out for their own interests. But as Nicola noted, it, it generally the way it works when a, a local company is privatized is that it uh, is that the old or existing employees keep all their benefits and so on and so forth, but all new employees coming in have a, a more private sector-based uh, package. So the, I think the union's concerns are more more likely to be centered around that and that the new corporatized entity would be able to get rid of or have, you know, come up with ways to try and move out some of the old employees to make way for cheaper incoming ones. But that's debatable because there's considerable political pressure uh, being applied, whether it's a a state-owned corporation or whether it's a state entity directly, because either way it's still the state that's being held accountable. So I don't know how much uh, of a legitimate worry that is. Now, on the side of whether or not this will help improve safety, the they're claiming <laughs> uh, that the, the, uh, the rules changes that would give them a little bit more flexibility in how to operate as being a corporation would mean that they would be able to develop and lease and generate considerable more income from properties near the near train stations that the TRA owns, and that that would be uh, then they could generate a lot more income from that, and then boost the income uh, from the corporation that up to sixty percent could come from non-train related non-train related uh, sources. Now, that may be true. Um, that may mean that you have a larger uh, income base. Maybe that will be put toward uh, safety. But first, they've got large debts. They haven't been able to raise their rates. So I think their thinking is that they need income from somewhere else because a lot of the infrastructure is just simply quite old, and that's why a lot of these accidents are happening. The high-speed rail is ultra-modern, ultra-new. They can more or less set their own rates uh, for tickets. 
whereas the TRA has been unable to do any of these things. They, they can't afford to modernize. They can't, they can't raise ticket rates to uh, rate, generate the revenue to do that. Accidents happen. They get blamed for it, but they're like, well, where's the money? How can we do it? So in theory, this may help. The question is, how is it actually implemented, and who's going to benefit at the end of the day? And that will be very interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, Nicola Curry, it's the railway unions that are opposing the move. But I think if it comes out that the ticket prices will be raised on the railway travel here, do you think the public might, there might be a backlash? Or do you think people will just swallow it and say, OK, fair enough? I think it, I think it depends on how you sell it. I mean, ticket prices haven't been raised for years. Now, you know, I, I, you maybe know how, how long it's been, but... I, th- I think if you if you sell it to the public as um, we need to improve rail safety and if you pay just a little bit extra on your ticket, that is going to help us do it. I just don't think that many people would object to that. I mean, people still have to use the trains. They're not going to boycott the train service. Um, I don't think anyone's going to lose an election over a slight increase in a, in a ticket price. And I, I think someone just to, to someone needs to just make the bold move and also explain exactly why um, and and also make sure that this um, increase does go towards improving the the tracks and safety measure. Yeah, I, 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 as far as raising the, the rates, they're kind of constrained on both ends of the spectrum. If they raise the rates too much on the fast express trains, then it's, they start making those trains less competitive against the high-speed rail. At the bottom end... You've got the, the, you know, what we used to call the blue trains, the local commuter trains. And those are often uh, packed out with laborers and students and uh, precisely the kind of people who don't have much uh, extra income. So they're kind of constrained on what they can get away with at both ends uh, on, on those. They may be able to tinker with it a little bit. You know, and as it, as I, I think Nicola is correct that if they raise the rates a bit, there isn't going to be a mass nationwide strike and people pouring into the streets and you know and the government overthrown. Um, it, it, but they are, I think, constrained on how much they ca- they can raise the rates, and will that be enough to alone dig it out of its hole? Never mind add, you know, actually rebuild and the aged infrastructure that's so dangerous. So I can kind of see the point where they want to be able to have the flexibility to start uh, leasing out land so they can start bringing in regular income from other sources. Then the big question, though, is where do they put that money and does it at the end of the day uh, go to, at least in part, toward improving safety for passengers, or is it just going to go into debt relief and you know goes into the, the pockets of contractors who may or may not have relations and friends within people within the state-owned corporation? So I think a lot of attention needs to be paid on where and how that money is used. And on that question, we'll be leaving it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicholas Smith. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. As always, enjoyed it. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app and get access to all our previous shows. 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.